This data-driven conversation is brought to you by Indicative, the leading behavioral analytics platform that empowers marketing and product teams to understand their customers' full journeys. Start deciding by data with up to 1 billion free user actions per month and unlimited user seats. For a limited time, deciding by data listeners will get early access to the Indicative platform. To sign up, go to indicative.com slash deciding by data. You're listening to Deciding by Data, the podcast that brings you into the C-suite to learn how data drives successful businesses. Today on the show, we'll give you a look inside Rent the Runway, a business that's dressed as a fashion company, but has the bones of a tech startup. Rent the Runway makes designer styles accessible to a wide array of customers. It does this by renting out clothing and accessories from its enormous inventory. Customers can choose from different subscription levels based on their needs. While some choose to rent a single dress for a special occasion, others opt for the unlimited subscription, which lets them rotate their wardrobe every time they send back a rented item. We talked to the guy who laid the foundation for Rent the Runway's massive logistics operation, Chief Analytics Officer Vijay Subramanian. What's really unusual about Vijay's role is that when he was hired in 2010, it was the first C-suite hire the founders made in the company's history. That's how serious the founders were about making data a central pillar in the company's culture. We asked Vijay how data influences every part of Rent the Runway's operations, from cleaning clothes to making the perfect recommendations for customers. This is your host, Jeremy Levy. If you've heard of Rent the Runway, you probably think of it as a fashion company. But what you probably didn't realize is that the company is grounded in tech. Vijay explained how Rent the Runway's infrastructure has rapidly advanced to keep up with growing demand. When we started, we were outsourcing the cleaning operation. So we had a website. Consumers could come and they could try inventory. They would drop it back. But we would send it to a, a cleaner down the street and we would go to that cleaner I have to sort through all the inventory that's ours, make sure it's actually really good condition, and then get it back to us and then ship it out. You know, when I joined and then sort of six months in, nine months in, when you looked at the actual behavior of how inventory was moving in and out and the timing of all of this stuff, there was two things that sort of dawned on us, right? Which is the, the dental economics is predicated on, obviously, how frequently you can turn it because the more the inventory is sitting with us, it's not good. And B, how long can you keep this going effectively? And those are the two important variables. And it became sort of, now again, it's obvious, but it was not that obvious then, is that the way to make it happen is to basically control the whole process. If you buy the inventory, you control how you take care of it, you control the timing of it. Not only can we make the backend economics work because we can turn the inventory as fast as we can, we also can fulfill the customer promise better. That promise to give women the flexibility to rent their clothes rather than own them was a promise that had never been made before. The idea of renting DVDs wasn't new when Netflix started, but as Vijay pointed out, renting clothes meant gambling on an entirely new model. The, the way I think about it is that the rental economics and how you actually build a business, how do you acquire customers, how do you make money, none of this was known. You, you can argue even Netflix, when they built it, they were kind of leveraging off of a history of people renting movies. Renting movies was not a new thing when Netflix launched. This and entire was, model is new for exactly. fashion. Exactly. So yeah. Blockbuster existed, right? So we had companies before that where people were used to the idea of, of renting versus owning. So we were creating a completely new category where the customer itself is changing their behavior while we're figuring out how to make the backend logistics and the equations actually work. Like how do you actually make money in this model? And you're dealing with highly capital intensive inventory, right? So we have inventory that is not a DVD. 
It's actually a beautiful gown. It's not as cheap as a DVD is. It needs a lot more care. When you when the inventory is uh, you know gets back to us before we give it to somebody else, we have to make sure it actually is like is like new. So there's a lot of elements to it that kind of imply that we need to a be incredibly good at building a brand so consumers will try it and be proud of it. And B, we had to be really good at making the economics and the backend infrastructure work. And that's where tech and data really came into play. That's why Rent the Runway's co-founders, Jennifer Fleiss and Jennifer Hyman, decided to bring on Vijay as their first C-suite hire. At the time, Vijay was working for the retail analytics startup ProfitLogic, which was later acquired by Oracle. ProfitLogic's co-founder, Scott Friend, made the introduction to Rent the Runway's founders. Rent the Runway's decision to make their first executive hire in analytics was a deliberate one and spoke to the core values of the company to make data-driven decisions. I mean, if you look back, it seems like an obvious decision to make, but it was definitely not obvious. So it really took, I think, both Scott and Jen, who made the hire, to actually, who actually made the introduction to me and then made the hire. It was a very bold move on their part. I think they saw something that this company is doing something completely new, first of all. Like rental didn't exist in any kind of scale, right? So we had to figure out a lot of stuff. Vijay's introduction to data science was not an obvious decision either. Before ProfitLogic, Vijay had landed a prestigious role at Procter & Gamble. After a year, he couldn't shake the feeling that this was not what he had been searching for. I knew I wanted to get into data and computing, and I was building these models for Procter & Gamble's production facilities. I mean, they have all these facilities around the world making shampoo and dog food and all this stuff. It's pretty exciting stuff, actually. And there, my job was to model those plants and see if we can drive better throughput and op- optimize the flow of the inventory through the facility. And there, you know, I mean, I, I learned a lot, but I felt like a very small, sort of isolated cell in this giant organism. And I didn't feel like I had the impact I wanted to have. I felt restless. I mean, you could call it ambition. Like, I, I felt like I could do a lot more. And that's when I actually, for the first time, dug into this world of startups. It actually is a concept where you can go work in a company that is smaller and there's like a small group of people who are really motivated to work together and, and build something from scratch, which was, by the way, an alien concept because I grew up in, in India in the 80s. And there, you're growing up in India, if you're growing up lower to lower middle class, to middle class in India, the pinnacle of success is to get a stable job at a large company. Right, sure. That was your, you made it, right? So when I, when I came to the U.S. for grad school and I got my master's and my PhD and I took a job at Procter & Gamble, my parents thought I had made it. Right. I've like finally arrived and now I have this like job at this incredible company, which was all good, all, all true and all good, except I still felt very restless and anxious about whether I'm actually fulfilling my, my potential. Did you study data or, or math back in college and university? Was, when did sort of data become the focal point of your career? That is a very interesting question, actually. So my undergrad is in chemical engineering, which has nothing really to do <laughs> right. with data per se. But when I came to the grad school, I started to think about what kind of work I wanted to do within chemical engineering. There were a handful of schools, it's very small, by the way, Carnegie Mellon, Purdue schools, where they had programs where they were really focused on math programming, statistics, computing, two chemical engineering problems. They were applying these methods to chemical engineering problems, like manufacturing facilities and that kind of stuff. And the rest of chemical engineering was like this broad swath of, of experimental work, like how fluids flow, how solids react to like chemical reactions, and like it's pretty heavy-duty experimental stuff. And when I saw the 95% of the 5%, I wanted to do the 5%. I really wanted to get into computing. And I, I can't explain why necessarily, but I wanted to be able to model things and understand things through the lens of like, computers and numbers, much more so than sitting in a lab and running experiments. Even as data scientist roles have expanded, the role of the chief analytics officer is still pretty new. I want to get a sense of how Vijay has carved out a space for himself and understand the significance of the position at a company like Rent the Runway. 
I don't know if I'm I'm the average sort of representation of a chief data officer or a chief analyst officer, right? And I, That's I, I my say, point. I don't think yeah, there is. I a, say it, a I say it only because I think I've been this since the very beginning, and you have to wear so many different hats in order to build a company. I mean, you can't just be focused on the data alone, right? You have to think about how the data marries with the software you're building. So I was a big, so I played a very big role in building a lot of the software that drove the logistics. So when an inventory shows up from a customer, we scan it. We need a triaging system to figure out which units do you push through in what sequence, like an ER, if you will, system for the like in the hospital, right? Sure. Like because certain units have more demand, they have to go out faster. Some need more cleaning time. So you, so, so you have to build an algorithm just to like sequence the inventory through the facility, right? You cannot do it just through just thinking about data. You have to build software and you have to build a product. To answer your question, though, because I'm not trying to get out of that question, which is, I think when you get to scale, there are functional domains that need functional leaders who run that domain. There's a reason why we have CTOs, right? If you wind the clock back 10, maybe 20 years or so, you will find companies where engineers were, are working under finance. I know it sounds crazy. Engineers will work under marketing. And their job was to build software products for marketing, for something else. But at some point, we realized like, that function is, is, a, is a unique function. It has tremendous leverage and value, and there's benefits for the function to be centralized under a leader who can drive not just the day-to-day -day of the function, but the strategy of the function and have a voice in the C-suite, right? So that's where the CTO role came into play, right? Even the CFO role, by the way, is not like that ancient. It's actually a fairly recent evolution over time. So when you think about these, I think of the data role in the same, in the same lens, which is there should be some function that is centralized, that is together, that builds a craft around it, that's thinking about what to collect, how to collect it, and then most importantly, run experiments. Have a culture of experimentation. That, that only trumps all of this stuff. You have to be able to say, okay, I've run, I, you know, here's the data I've looked at, here's my hypothesis. Okay, what do I need to know in order to prove the hypothesis? Go run the experiment, look at the data, prove this hypothesis, rinse and repeat. It's the good old scientific method that's led to the glory of all of our civilization. So like, let's use that process in building companies. And to do that, I think you need a, at this point, if you're at scale, if you have a CTO, if you have a CFO, if you have a CPO, head of product, or a COO of operations, you better have a head of data analytics. Vijay talked me through all the tedious and logistically challenging steps that make up a garment's journey. His team analyzes each and every one of these steps to ensure that their inventory smoothly arrives at its destination. Vijay explained how the logistics engine got started. So a lot of our capital and mind space was invested in on the logistics. Now, why, so why was that important? Because that ultimately led to the equation by which you know that you can buy unit of inventory and you can get enviable unit economics out of it, right? So ultimately, if your unit economics is incredibly profitable on, on a unit of inventory, then everything else is just about scaling the business. And many startups actually start off with a model where the unit economics is not profitable and they hope that scale gives you that. And that's actually a very important distinction, right? We knew that we had to get the unit economics to be profitable. So to do that, we needed to own the logistics we needed to own the cleaning, we needed to own the sourcing, we needed to own the control of inventory, the timing, and the technology of all of this stuff. Every unit of inventory that you as a customer may consume, when you get it back, it goes through our giant fulfillment center. Honestly, it's, it's kind of a wrong thing to call ours, ours a fulfillment center. It's, it's actually a manufacturing facility because the units actually come back. These are like in tens and thousands of units that come back every day that we have to go through a process where we have to sort it. We have to figure out what needs to be processed how because different fabrics have different needs, right? So the eight years of knowledge really, the, where data has played a very critical role is figuring out how to take these units of inventory with different fabrications and different uses 
and figure out the optimal way to take care of them. That makes sense. So by doing that, we're able to prolong how long it actually can last, and then we're able to get more value out of the end of inventory. So what do you mean by take care of them? Does that mean using some level of data in terms of the maintenance of those dresses, the ideal chemicals for stain removal, or is that figuring out the optimal time that a, a dress can be used in terms of how many times can it be rented? How do you, how do you, it's, help me understand sort of what you mean yeah, by it's, that? It's, it's the full life cycle, right? It's, it's, it starts with even how you buy up front, right? You figure out over time what kind of units of inventory are better for long-term use, basically. And you can over time figure out what kind of fabrics are more amenable to cleaning and processing over time. For example, we have 60 art fabrication codes for a unit of inventory, and we can look at the data and say what, and depending on how it went through each turn, what happened to it, controlling for those factors, which fabrics have what kind of longevity and, and, and what kind of care. And then it comes down to what care are you actually doing. We can test different types of cleaning methods, right? So how do you, how do you clean this? in what kind of machine, with what kind of chemicals. And then you can test when something happens to it, how do you take, how do you like repair it? It goes all the way through the whole life cycle till the, till the end of it. Now, to do that, you can't do that if you don't control the whole technology and the process and the data collection around it. And that's really what we did. When it comes to the data that Rent the Runway collects and the data that traditional retail stores own, he drew a sharp distinction. The two elements that I think are really interesting for us that very few companies I think actually work on and invest in is let's go one way in this direction, which is the signal for what is true demand. So we know what you're getting, but what you're getting is often a function of what is also available at that point in time. How do you really figure out what you truly want? So we, we track a lot of that data from a user perspective to understand what are you searching for? What are you filtering on? And then we have this feature where you can like something and you may like something even when you don't even have open slots, right? So I have four slots at home, it's fully booked. I don't really need to pick anything, but I could still like something. So that the next time when you come to pick, you actually may want to select that item to get it to your home, right? So those signals are orthogonal or independent of true availability at, at that point in time. What do you like and what are you filtering on stuff? We use that to understand like how miscued are we by looking at customer segments in terms of what people want and what the true demand is. So that really affects and corrects our buying process upfront. And that data is a very rich data set because we're doing it at user level. And we're then asking the question for every user, what's actually, what is she like? It's sort of in the abstract sense, in terms of the ideal sense. What do we have in our catalog? How much in our catalog is relevant to her? How much is available at a point in time? So there's a whole funnel, right? And then we then ask ourselves, how do we correct it at every user? And then we aggregate it to go do the buy. So if I understand that, you essentially are measuring what people are interested in from a fashion, maybe size perspective, and then that's influencing the buying decisions and also the recommendation decisions, independent of what's currently in the inventory. Exactly. Of course, those are somewhat correlated, but you have to control for that factor, right. and we control for the factor by, by getting signals of what she likes that are independent of On an individual basis. Exactly. So you know what you get. We have all signals on what you want, and we try and adjust what, you, what we buy to get you what you want. And then there's another thing which is even more interesting and more rare in commerce, which is once we ship the item to you, we get a feedback on every single unit that you actually got. And you ask us how many people in, in how many commerce companies have that data, right? The, the reality is unlike other companies, we actually have to, we get feedback from you on every single unit, which is a very rich tapestry of data. Did you wear it or not? First of all, if you, if you did wear it, did you like it? Did you love it? It was just okay. If it was just okay, why was it just okay? Now, did you not wear it? If you did not wear it, why? Was it a fit issue? Was it because it wasn't fattering? It was fit issue, then tell me where the fit issue was. Was it the chest? Was it the waist? Was it the height? If you can think about that data points that we're collecting and that's on every single item, and you actually cannot 
go pick your next item until you give feedback on the previous items that you actually selected. So we do that and then we get this rich data point on what actually is being not only consumed, but what are actually people genuinely wearing and not wearing and for what reasons. And that actually also feeds back into the buying process, right? Because we can start looking for signals on, okay, this thing is popular, but it has certain issues with fit with certain types of people. So maybe we should, do some, we should, we should get something else that is like this item that probably has a better fit profile. So we can do the same calculation that we did for true demand. So, so true demand is like, what do you like in terms of style? And what is your work aesthetic, right? When you go to work, how do you want to dress up for work essentially? And then there is this, the actual consumption data on what you wear and why and did you like it or not. And like, so both of these go into this machinery to figure out what you're buying in the first place. We're going to take a short break. But when we return, Vijay will explain Rent the Runway's vision of a closet in the cloud. Stay tuned. This data-driven conversation is brought to you by Indicative, the leading behavioral analytics platform that allows business users to optimize acquisition, engagement, and retention. Indicative empowers marketing and product teams to do sophisticated behavioral analysis without having to rely on data teams. For a limited time, Deciding by Data listeners will get early access to the Indicative platform. To sign up, go to indicative.com slash decidingbydata. Welcome back to Deciding by Data. We're here with Vijay Subramanian, Chief Analytics Officer of Rent the Runway. We left off with Vijay explaining one of the key challenges his team is working on, understanding fit. Fit is just one of the considerations Rent the Runway takes into account when recommending clothes to its customers. Vijay outlined the future vision for the recommendation engine. Look, ideally, what's the holy grail of recommendations, right? You show up on the homepage. I literally can show you the next two items that you want to get. Let's say I'm returning two items and I want two more items. You literally want to get to the next two items and you literally show that. And I'm like, that's what I want. Press the button. I get it. Don't that's sort of browse, the, the holy right. grail. So I was giving you a metric of like, if, the, if I show you 10 items, you're on the app, right? So you open the app and you scroll through it. If I can get to the two items out of the 10 that I show mm-hmm. you, that would be fantastic. Are we there today? No. Because today people are looking at it, they may select one and then they may browse, they may apply other filters and they may still get to it, right? So, but that as our catalog expands and as we get more and more data, right? Because th- this program is about a couple of years old. So we, we have now millions of data points on, bo- on the feedback right now. But as we get better and better at figuring out the customer segments, more and more granular, and then we start to figure out fit and all of those elements of it, I, I, I do think you're going to see higher and higher selection rates from the very first 10 items. And not only is it a selection thing, we want you to wear all of the items actually and have a feedback that actually says you loved it, right? Because that's ultimately the holy grail. It's not just saying, I can show you things that you like. That is somewhat of a solved problem, right? I mean, we've done that with music, we've done that with movies. So we will apply similar techniques to figure out what styles you like, like what things you like in terms of your, D- your style DNA, if you will. But the, the, the thing that is definitely not solved in fashion is being able to maximize your wear rate of that item and being able to make sure that it actually fits you because fit is an incredibly hard problem. I wanted to take a step back for a second to something you mentioned a moment ago, which is sort of the holy grail of that recommendation engine. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the holy grail would be really that I have almost nothing in my closet or I have like the basic essentials in my closet and that my entire inventory as an individual, my closet, it's essentially something I can rent on an ongoing basis. Is the way you think about that recommendation algorithm, is that go that far to say, I don't even need to browse 10 items to, get to, you know, to find those two? How far does that go? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the holy grail for our company, for the market, is that your closet is predominantly stuff that's on rotation. 
look, look, you're gonna you, you will still buy your basics. You're gonna buy your jeans. You could still buy your t-shirts and stuff that you need to live your daily basic life. But I think for anything else, for any kind of dress you're wearing to work, for any outfit you're wearing for an event, for a wedding, for whatever, our hope is that for all consumers in the U.S. or in the world eventually, you are rotating it through a closet in the cloud. And that really is the vision for us. I like that closet right? in the cloud. So yeah. we do think of it very much as there's inventory that's out there and that just shows up magically and you wear it and it goes back and it's perfectly aligned with your life. Yeah. Right? During the work day, during the work week, it shows up for stuff that you want to wear for work. Maybe there's one dress that you want to wear for going out at night with your friends. And then when you return that stuff and then for the weekend, you go into a wedding. So it shows up on a Friday for the weekend, the perfectly beautiful wedding dress that you can wear. So that's kind of what really the macro vision is. Getting back to this notion of closet in the cloud, it's fascinating, right? The idea that some system can take not just my fit, but my calendar, where I'm going, what I'm doing, integrate that with my fashion sensibilities, and essentially pick for me what I'm going to wear on any given day. How, how far away are we from something like that? We're seeing signals already where we see in certain markets, in certain companies even, where one person tries it and she becomes obsessed with it and you then monitor her behavior for a while and you find out that she's spending less and less money owning things. Her closet has, has basically been transformed. So what we're seeing now in the last couple of years is we're seeing these pockets and we're seeing these network effects emerge in these markets and these companies. That said, I do think we're probably like in the next decade, we're going to be much more, more of a mass market product, right? I mean, we're growing. We're very happy with our growth rates. I mean, we're, we're crushing it in terms of how, how this is growing. But we're not Amazon scale, right? So, I mean, we, so we, our, our hope is that we can be sort of a scale where mass market consumers around the world would be able to do this. I love this idea, though, that I don't have to care about what I wear anymore. It makes me think about the way Steve Jobs had his turtleneck uniform, right? And uh, Mark Zuckerberg always wears, you know, a hoodie, you know, and, and they describe it as, well, look, you know, I have a certain amount of brain cycles that I can allocate to things in the day and choosing what I'm going to wear is not at the top of their list. I wonder what are the other implications of this in someone's life if I no longer have to think about what I have to wear. Would I be that, would people be that much more productive every day? For sure, yeah. Except they're not writing the same thing in this model. You're also getting the variety of it and you're getting the diversity right. of it without you having to do the heavy mental lift of yeah. what you actually need to get. And the fact that I, it sounds like in this model, I would never have to do laundry ever again, which, which right. would be so, awesome so, also. So, you know, so right now, the, the, the price point for the product, uh, for the one that's unlimited, is 100, uh, 159 a month. And you look at that and uh, for sure, like I, I would definitely claim, not claim that every single consumer in the U.S. can afford that product on a monthly basis. But you look at what people spend on clothing today and look at what they spend on cleaning it and maintaining it, you'll be surprised how much it adds up. I think we're at the beginning of a revolution. And it's really a question of scale and how fast we get to scale. The influence of data extends far beyond Vijay's desk. The company is structured so that data is an integral part of every job function. You, you have these functional teams. You have technology. You have product. You have data. You have marketing. You have operations. You have finance, let's say, right? I'm just, I'm just being like simplistic here. We have those functional leadership and they all report up to somebody who's got a voice at the C-suite. But the way we operate is cross-functional. We actually have a matrix organization where we carve out these initiatives. This team is going to work on growth. Go acquire new users. This team works on, once our users are in the program, work on retention, work on making them happy, work on improving satisfaction, basically. These users work on operational excellence. Build the software to make our operations more efficient, better throughput, higher quality. This team works on inventory sourcing, better inventory segmentation, right? All of these teams are all cross-functional. They have engineers and data and products. So they're all embedded together. 
data is like woven into the DNA of all of these teams. Many companies like to think that they are data-driven, but Vijay sees many levels along the spectrum. We closed out our conversation by outlining what these different levels look like. First, there's what Vijay calls data-informed companies. Which I think most companies are hopefully by now, where they do look at data, they make decisions, they, but they're largely reactive. There's data floating and everyone looks at it, they think about it, they, you know, and then they move on, right? A lot of these are, uh, these are very reactive conversations. Then you have the data-driven, the term that you used, the data-driven companies, where it's much more proactive where you really, where data, where you have healthy debates about not just like, the, the numbers are table stakes. Everyone knows we have numbers, right? We are data rich, but we're discussing a lot about what it means. What's the interpretation of the data? Was this data collected properly? Was, is that a bias in the way you, you, you're looking at the numbers? And, and then you're thinking about experiments. This is, this is the most important thing. You're thinking about, okay, I, I know this much. What do I need to know in order to make this or do that? So you're, you're running tests all the time with customers internally, you're, you're running through scientific tests, like A-B tests, and you're saying, okay, I run an experiment, I see what happens, and then you're drawing conclusions again. So it's an it's iterative process where you're figuring out the business together in this cross-functional team, and the data player is the one who's helping build that culture. But it's not just one person. If the entire team doesn't think that way, it's going to fail. So the job of the data person is to imbue that culture and the way of thinking across product, across engineers, across a marketer, so that they're all thinking the same language and the same lens. And then the pinnacle to me, which is just a, a special case of data-data-driven company, is you're just data-native. Like you're born that way, it's woven into your DNA, it's how you organize. No one even thinks of data as like a secondary thing. It's just part of how you operate. And when you do that, something special happens, which is, again, you, you, you're kind of building the company by applying the scientific method. You just don't, you, you, like, like it's sort of second nature to you. Like anytime you, you talk about things that, that's happening, you always ask about what do I not know? How do I collect that data? These are all native phrases you're using day in and day out. What experiment do I need to run to prove or disprove a hypothesis? When you have people talking like that, that is a data native company, right? And that's really the holy grail, I think, of like a culture that it's also just part of how you think and how you operate. Thanks for listening to Deciding by Data. This episode was produced and edited by Lauren Feiner. And hosted by Jeremy Levy, the co-founder and CEO of Indicative. Our music is by Chris Zabritsky and Boxcat Games. Tune in next time for the last episode of season one. We talked to Gina Bianchini, founder and CEO of Money Networks. I talked to Gina about her company's alternate approach to social networking and how she imagines the future of online social networks in a time where security concerns have rattled large platforms like Facebook. To learn how to make your company data-driven like the ones on our show, check out Indicative, the behavioral analytics company that makes this podcast possible. Indicative empowers marketing and product teams to do sophisticated behavioral analysis across all of their customers' digital touch points without having to rely on data teams. For a limited time, Deciding by Data listeners will get early access to the Indicative platform. To sign up, go to indicative.com slash decidingbydata. To stay up to date on the latest episodes and data news, sign up for our newsletter at decidingbydata.com or follow us on Twitter at decidingbydata.